Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Peter Singer. Peter Singer is a renowned Australian moral philosopher, best known for his work in applied ethics, particularly regarding animal rights and global poverty. He's considered a leader in the development of the modern animal rights movement, which was hugely influenced by his 1975 book, Animal Liberation. He's just released a new version of the book called Animal Liberation Now, which we discuss today. We talk about what has changed since he wrote the original book in the 70s. We talk about lab-grown meat, which seemed to be right around the corner but still hasn't arrived on the shelves. We talk about the ethical status of capitalism. We talk about the ethical arguments for and against veganism. We talk about the ethics of abortion. We talk about the effective altruism movement and Sam Bankman-Fried. We talk about the ethics of lying to children and much more. So without further ado, Peter Singer. Okay, Peter Singer, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks for having me on your show, Coleman. It's great to be with you. So the occasion is your new book, Animal Liberation Now. That's right. Yep, I'm pretty excited about that. It's really going back to things that I did nearly 50 years ago and trying to make them uh, fresh and relevant again to the 21st century. So for people who don't know, your original book, Animal Liberation, is widely credited as having started in some way the animal rights movement in the 70s. And so my first question is, what is different about this book, Animal Liberation Now? What arguments, if any, have changed since you wrote that foundational book 50 years ago? Right. It's a good question. So a lot of things have changed. A lot of them are not so much arguments as the facts that I was describing, because Animal Liberation was never just a philosophy book. It has ethical arguments in it that set out a framework for how I think we should treat animals, what the ethical status of animals is. But it also had two chapters, the longest two chapters in the book, in fact, that were really descriptive. One about the way animals are used in research and the other about the way they're raised for food, especially in factory farming. So those two chapters have really completely changed because there's no point in putting out a book that describes what was done in research in the 1980s. And similarly with factory farming, it's it's changed. Some respects has got better, not so much in the United States, but in uh, Europe because there have been laws passed controlling how you can keep animals to some extent. You know, it's a long way from what I'd like, but it's still better. And in other ways, it's got worse, partly because there's been more intensive selective breeding. So the chickens that we eat grow even faster, uh, and that has welfare problems for them that I can go into. And it's also expanded globally. Uh, So China was not a big consumer of meat 50 years ago because too many people were poor. Um, Now they've got more money and they want to spend more of that on buying meat. And China has responded to that by building huge factory farms, including like 26-storey buildings just filled with pigs on every floor. Uh, so, you know, you have to make the book more global, bring that into account. Um, and then, you know, to go back to your original question, in terms of arguments, um, there's a new argument for not eating meat that didn't exist really or nobody was aware of in 1975, and that's climate change. Uh, you know, I only learned about climate change in the mid-1980s and a lot of people didn't accept it for longer than that. Uh, and then even when I learned about it, I didn't realise that it wasn't just burning coal and oil and fossil fuels that contribute to it, but also meat production and especially cows produce a lot of methane. So that's an, a new argument for uh, why we should be cutting out meat consumption. Uh, and then I, I looked at some of the other arguments about treatment of wild animals, for example, that I hadn't really done before. And I also brought in uh, newer scientific evidence about what animals are really like. The fact that it's not just that they can feel physical pain, but that they have a whole range of emotions. They can suffer from boredom and various you know, social deprivation. So there's a lot of new research. And it also extends concern for animals like fish that maybe people didn't have that much concern for previously. Okay, so there's a lot there. Let's talk about China first. I just released a podcast uh, with uh, uh, all about China, so it's top of mind. 
Given how huge China is, given that it's, what, one-seventh, one-eighth of, of the whole world, is there a significant animal rights movement in China at all? And what do you think, if there's not, what do you think can be done to import your ideas into China? Yeah, it would be a bit of a stretch to say that there's a significant animal rights movement in China. What they're is is there are groups of people concerned about animals, but they're mostly concerned about companion animals. You know, as as people here were 50 years ago, you know, the concern was more about dogs and cats and horses than it was about chickens and pigs and cows. So China, to some extent, is at that stage. There are certainly individuals who are concerned about animals and are aware of the issues relating to the treatment of animals, but uh, it's not really an organized group. If you said, you know, where's a, what's, what's a big group in China that corresponds to, say, people for the ethical treatment of animals here in the United States, I think you'd have to say there just isn't one. Okay, so you mentioned that there's new research showing that animals have a wider palette of emotions and a depth of psychology that was not known when you wrote Animal Liberation. How do we know that? We know it through a lot of, in some cases, observation, observation of free-living animals, which, say, was, was started by Jane Goodall, and I did already talk about Jane Goodall's work in the first edition of Animal Liberation. But it's been greatly extended to a, a range of other animals from chimpanzees. You know, her work was on chimpanzees and, and also to do with, with farmed animals. Um, and, say, with, with, with chickens, people used to think of chickens as pretty dumb animals and there wasn't much to it. But, in fact... Chickens can actually learn to delay gratification in order to get something better later. This is something that was tested on on small children, you know, that was called the marshmallow test. If you give them a marshmallow and you tell them that if they don't eat it for five minutes, they'll get and they'll get two. Some children do restrain and some don't. Well, chickens, when you can sort of teach them that, uh, a lot of chickens can also figure out that if I don't eat this now, I'll get more later, so I'm not going to eat this now. So, you know, that's one capacity. But there's a whole lot of social relationships that we know more about and we know that they care about it. Let me describe one bit of research about fish because people are still sceptical about fish. Um, And it both shows the capacity to feel pain and the importance of pair relationship. So um, one of the things to establish whether animals of various kinds feel pain is to see whether they will trade off some pain for something else that they like. So you can imagine easily doing this with with dogs, for example, has been done. You get them a little bit hungry, there's a place where they can get food, but they have to cross an electrified floor to do it. Well, depending how bad the electric shock is and how hungry they are, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. Well, with fish, that was shown to be somewhat similar, except the reward in one of these pieces of research was not getting food, but being with a mate, this was, you know, there's many different species of fish and they don't all have strong bonds with, um, with a mate, but there's some species of fish that do. So uh, with this it was shown, you know, just the same sort of thing, that if you separated the pair and then you, they had some barrier that they would get some uh, electric shock, though they're in water, but they would get it in a certain area, if they rejoined their mate they would endure a certain amount of of electric shock and presumably a certain amount of pain, therefore, to get with their mate. But obviously there was a point at which the pain was too extreme and they wouldn't do it. So I think that that shows the caring for the mate or being close to the mate as a significant thing. I have two questions about that. One is those are examples of complex behaviours, but how do we know that they correspond with complex psychology? Well, I think it's the most parsimonious explanation of the behavior, especially when you combine it with knowing that they have a nervous system that is related to ours. You know, all vertebrate nervous systems are are related to some extent. And, you know, I mean, there's depends how skeptical you want to be. Uh, obviously, famously, um, you know, like Descartes, you can be a skeptic about whether animals feel pain at all, whether any animals feel pain. And it's very hard to uh, logically prove that they do. But uh, for that matter, it's very hard to logically prove, um, you know, that you feel pain. And we're, we're going to face this with uh, artificial intelligence, of course, soon. You know, whether an artificial intelligence is, is conscious and can feel pain is going to be a difficult question. But I think with non-human animals, when, we, when the behaviour is similar to the way we behave, um, and another thing I might mention too is if you give uh, animals, including, again, fish, um, if, you, if you cause them to be experiencing some pain, this particular experiment was done by injecting bee venom into the lips of fish and, and their behaviour changed. 
these were fish that got food by digging around on the bottom or in the gravel of the bottom of their tank, um, which obviously involves their lips. And when you injected the bee venom in it, they stopped doing that because it was clearly sore, that it was painful. But then if you gave them um, an analgesic, you know, like aspirin or paracetamol or something like that, their behaviour moved back towards being more normal. So the pain uh, appeared to, whatever it was, appeared to lessen and their behaviour changed. And this was true with, with these, these fish as well. So I think that's a further piece of evidence that things work pretty much as you would expect them to if they're having the feelings that we are. Isn't there just a deep link between pain and movement? In, in, in other words, any evolved species that can move probably can feel pain in a Darwinian rationale. And any of all species that can't move, like a tree, had no reason to develop the capacity for pain because it can't move away from the pain. Yeah, I think that's very plausible. I'm, I agree with that. And for example, that's the reason why, although I'm sort of you know, largely vegan, I, I wouldn't mind eating oysters because oysters don't move either. Um, so I think it's and they have very rudimentary nervous systems. They're not nervous systems at all like vertebrates. So I think it's very likely that they can't feel pain. That they can't or? That they can't. They cannot feel pain, yeah. Um, and as you say, why would they have evolved a capacity to feel pain if they can't move away from a source of danger? Ultimately, is pain, is the capacity to feel pain the right criterion to get us to care about a being's suffering? Because it seems to me, I believe there's a rare condition where human a human baby can be born without the capacity to feel pain uh physical pain yes that's physical true, pain right yeah. and yet it would seem to me no no better to kill such a child than to kill a human that a normal functioning human so is criterion is the pain criterion the right criterion i think physical pain is too narrow here i wouldn't say that's the criterion i would rather say it's the capacity to have states of consciousness that are either positive or negative to the experiencing subject. So I think the people with that condition that you mentioned, they don't feel physical pain. So, you know, life is difficult for them. They, they leave their hand on a hot, something hot where it's, and then they smell that their skin is burning and then they might take the, it away. So they don't feel physical pain, but that doesn't mean that they can't be lonely or sad or experience negative emotions, negative states of consciousness. So I think that's what's important. If, if you had a being who could not experience any, experience anything positive or negative, then I think it's more like a plant. I don't think there is really a moral status that you need to take account of. Is it immoral in your view to kill an animal painlessly? No, I, my concern is not so much about killing, right? The answer to your question would depend on the nature of the being, I think, to some extent, um, and whether they have desires that you're thwarting by killing them. I think that's perhaps relevant to whether killing is wrong. But my concern is much more about the suffering we inflict on animals than about the fact that we kill them. So in principle, the, the best reason to become a vegan is to reduce the suffering of animals that are alive. Yes. So what are there other ways to reduce the suffering of animals that are alive short of becoming a vegan? Oh, certainly, yes. You can be politically active and you can lobby for laws that uh, prevent keeping them in ways that cause suffering. That's a important thing to do. I've done a lot of that for the last 50 years and uh, I certainly encourage other people to do it. So I remember around maybe eight years ago, lab-grown meat seemed like it was right around the corner. And yet I, I don't see it on the shelves. I, you know, I've, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I, I do have an, an attachment to eating meat based on how the energy it makes me feel. And I, I was a vegetarian for many years and felt much better once I started eating meat. And that also coincides with the fact that I like the taste. So motives may be mixed. So I'm, I'm the kind of person that would feel better about buying lab-grown meat. What is the state of lab-grown meat currently? What is, what is the limiting factor preventing it from getting on the shelves? Yeah, there's a kind of there's there's a joke about this, you know, lab grown meat is five years away and always will be. So, uh, but actually, it's you can buy lab grown meat if you go to uh, restaurants in Singapore. There's a restaurant selling lab grown chicken. The reason you're buying it at a restaurant rather than a supermarket is if you saw it in a supermarket shelf, you would say, "Wow, that's a lot more expensive than chicken. Why will I buy it?" And in a restaurant, you know that. The cost of the ingredients is just a small part of the cost of the meal, of course. So you can buy it. And I, I think actually it is coming, but getting the cost to compete with uh, that of meat is a real problem at the moment. It would need to scale up, and I think we haven't got enough experience. But, um, you know, if you talk to people in the industry, uh, they say it's coming. And incidentally, the other thing that is a, a lab-grown 
product um, that was just approved a, a couple of weeks ago um, by the uh, Israeli food authorities is milk, dairy proteins that do not come from cows. And they are now available, I, I understand, uh, well, they've certainly just been approved for sale in Israel. And it's nutritionally equivalent to milk. It's precision fermentation with using yeast to produce the same uh, proteins. And, and that's different from a lot of the uh, plant-based cheese that we have in this country, which is not nutritionally equivalent to other cheese. You know, maybe in some ways it's better. It might have less cholesterol or something, but um, it's, it, it's not certainly not the same, whereas apparently this is. And that, you know, the head of that company is saying that this could be on the market soon and because you don't have the problems that you do with meat of getting the right texture or chewiness or whatever, it might be something that spreads faster. What is the best argument against vegetarianism and veganism, by which I mean the argument that requires the most effort to refute? The argument against vegetarianism or veganism that requires the most effort to refute is the conscientious omnivore's position. So this is somebody who says, I agree with you about factory farming, that's awful, but if we raise animals in good conditions, allow them not just not to suffer physically, but to move around, to go outside in the sunshine, to be part of a social group that is natural for their species and suits their instinctive needs, and then we, uh, you know, we don't truck them long distances to a slaughterhouse, but we kill them uh, instantly on the farm. What's the problem with that, right? Because they can then say, yeah, sure, you know, we're killing this animal, but this animal wouldn't even have existed if it was not the case that we were going to kill it and then sell its flesh because, you know, it's too expensive to rear animals without getting some income from them. So I do find that a difficult argument. And the reason it's a difficult argument, and, you know, I'm not even sure that I can really refute it in you know, that, that's a, a strong term. It requires you to get into this question of whether bringing somebody into existence is a benefit, right? because that's what the argument implies. We've benefited these animals by bringing them into existence. Sure, we've killed them then, and you could say that harms them because it deprives them of this good existence they were having. But it's still better to have lived for a while, relatively short time, because we like to eat animals when they're young. They're not so tough as when they get old. So it's, it's still, it's better to live for a relatively short time and have a painless death than not to have lived at all. Uh, and, you know, as I say, I mean, that, that goes back to some pretty deep philosophical questions that were discussed by uh, Derek Parfitt, who, Oxford philosopher who died a few years ago, whose work I, I greatly admire and I considered him a friend. And, and he was dealing with these problems about humans, about, you know, would it be better to have a larger population of humans if the average level of happiness was lower, slightly lower than if you had a smaller population, but there were more of them. So the total amount of happiness in the human population was greater. And Parfit spent a lot of his life sort of searching for an answer to that question. He had various theories, all of which had objections and many other very smart philosophers have tried to solve that problem. I don't think anybody's got a satisfactory solution. So if, if that is what lies behind the uh, argument of the conscientious omnivore, then it is a, a really difficult position to refute. I think I heard a podcast with Tyler Cowen and Will McCaskill where Tyler made the point that why can't, why can't philosophers just say that the utilitarian mode of thinking breaks down under certain conditions, such as thinking about very large numbers of people or that there are just certain cases where the utilitarian style of thinking does not yield good answers, but that doesn't mean you scrap the whole theory. And that, that's true of like many, many theories, I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Certainly other ethical theories have, I think they break down quicker, if you like, than, than utilitarianism. I mean, you can say that there's something unsatisfactory about saying we don't have answers at all, right? Because it's not as if there's some other theory that has answers to, to these questions. So it really means uh, there are some questions, and maybe this population issue that Parfit worked on is one of them, that um, seem to be beyond our pay grade, if you like, you know, um, anyone's pay grade. It's unsatisfactory, but it's not unique to philosophy. Like physicists don't understand quantum mechanics, rival interpretations of quantum mechanics, right? Yeah. There's no answer to that. And that doesn't mean physics is bad or you throw it out. It just means yeah. we've re we sometimes reach limits and we're not guaranteed to ever go past those limits, though we may always want to try. Exactly, exactly. We're not guaranteed to, but we can't help trying, I would say, in a way. Because it's too and, fun. 
Well, it's fun, but also because of that sort of nagging annoyance that we can't work it out, right? That, that, that there's something there that we feel we should be able to discover or solve, and we can't. And uh, so I think, yeah, it's not just fun. It's just that we we have this urge to 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 do it. There's a kind of dissonance if we feel we've got a theory that covers nearly all cases, but what about this kind of example? Why doesn't it cover that? So the idea that it is a benefit to bring a creature into the world, that would seem to have implications for the ethics of abortion. Because if it is indeed a benefit to bring something in the world, then it would seem the pro-life, at least not not the Christian argument for it, but a secular pro-life argument would have an argument. It would have an application in some cases, but not all, because in a society where people plan their pregnancies and their children, um, and often couples have a view about how many children they want to have. So suppose that there is a couple who have decided, let's say, that they're going to have two children. And then the woman gets pregnant at a critical time in her career where uh, she would have to take some leave to look after the child and she actually wants to be able to spend time with her first child. But that would really stop her advancing, whereas if she could delay getting pregnant for a couple of years, she would be in a much better position. But then accidentally she does become pregnant. So if she terminates that pregnancy, it won't change the number of people who come into existence. She will have the child, or not the same child, obviously, but she will have her her first child will just be born two years later. So I don't think it's an anti-abortion argument in all cases, but it is a consideration for saying other things being equal if you get pregnant it would be better, and assuming, of course, you can give the child a good start in life so they have a prospect of a positive life, then other things being equal, it would be better to bring this child into existence. Now, the other things being equal, of course, includes environmental considerations. You know, would it be bad to have more people because they're going to emit more greenhouse gases and that's going to be harmful or some other reason? So, so there's a lot of factors. But, yeah, it would be saying one factor that counts in favour of not terminating the pregnancy is that the child will have a happy life. Yeah, I I think that's an argument almost no one considers, which is that many women choosing to get an abortion, they're not choosing whether or not to have a kid. They're choosing whether to have a kid now or to whether, whether to have a kid later. Obviously, that does not cover all cases of abortions, but it certainly covers it covers cases that I know within my own network of friends and, and family and so forth. So what is your perspective on the ethics of abortion as a, as a philosopher? Uh, so I think that abortion before the fetus is capable of feeling pain is not, you know, not a moral issue, really. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think women, sometimes they would want to take in, into account the views of the father of the child, but I think that they generally should have completely free choice about that and they shouldn't feel that there is something morally wrong that they're doing if they decide to end the life of their fetus. Once the fetus can feel pain, I think then there's another factor there. It not, might not be a decisive factor, depending how significant the reasons for terminating the pregnancy are, but it's a factor. You might consider also whether there's a the procedure of abortion is one that will or will not cause pain. To This is you know, quite late in pregnancy we're talking about, how, how that uh, abortion should be done, uh, whether there's something you can do to prevent the, the fetus feeling pain. But, um, you know, apart from that... I don't think there's anything wrong with ending the life of a, of a fetus. Is the, the cancellation of future life a consideration at all? In other words, independent of its ability to feel pain, the fact that one is canceling future potential flourishing, is that in the ethical calculus? or? Well, only to the extent that a decision not to have children raises that issue, right? I don't think there's something distinctive about abortion that isn't the case about that decision that couples might make. Well, we could have a child. Do we want to have a child? Should we have a child? Generally, couples will make that decision with regard to their own interests rather than thinking about it's a benefit to our child who has a good chance of having a positive life. Um, and the same would be true when it's not just you know a child but two children or more children. Do you put any weight on what I guess one would call an act of commission versus an, versus an act of omission? In other words... If, if one is already pregnant, then simply by living, this thing will come into existence. But before one is pregnant, one is deciding whether to do it. So it's, a, it's action versus inaction. Yeah. Does that have moral weight or not? Not for me, no, I don't think so. And that's, 
that's you know particularly significant in areas like um, assisted dying or voluntary euthanasia, where you know it's I, I've always found it curious that there was when I started working in bioethics, there was a lot of opposition to the idea that physicians should assist people in dying by prescribing a drug that they could take, which will end their lives or giving them a lethal injection as is allowed in some countries. But there was no opposition to withdrawing life support from a patient who wanted to die. I mean, that was just considered, obviously, you know, if a patient wants to die, the doctors should consent to withdrawing, let's say, a respirator or whatever it is that is keeping the patient alive. Uh, and that always seemed to me to be a mistake. I mean, the, the difficult issue is whether the life is worth living, whether the patient is making an autonomous choice. All of those questions you can debate and argue about. But the fact that the death is brought about by uh, a lethal injection rather than by turning off a machine seems to me to be irrelevant. I think I agree about that. I, I certainly agree that death with dignity um, should be should be the norm. You know, you should be once it's so clear that a person has no more left uh, to give and, and nothing left to live for. You know, they should not be made to suffer for you know weeks. In you know, this is something I, I, I experienced with my mother and many of us experienced, which is just it's so clear in the moment that it would be better to let people pass gently. Yeah, absolutely. And and I've had contrasting experiences. So in the case of my father who had cancer, this was at a time when it was not legal for physicians to help people to die. And I think he had quite a, a painful death from a distressing death. Uh, whereas my, my wife's brother also had cancer and fought it for a long time. But eventually his quality of life got really poor and the doctors told him it was going to get significantly worse because of where the tumour was. And, and he was able to use the legislation. This is in Melbourne, the state of Victoria, and pretty much all of Australia now has voluntary assisted dying. So he was able to choose the time of his death. Uh, he was in the hospital, but they had a particular special room that they used for this purpose. His family came to say goodbye. He was given a drug. He said goodbye to everybody, had his favourite music playing, took the drug, fell asleep, and that was what he wanted. And it was just so much better than the way my father died. Okay, so... So you've, uh, one of the arguments you're most famous for is about donating your money to charity. And you have a famous thought experiment, I'm sure my listeners, many of my listeners at least are aware of, uh, the idea that if you were walking down the street and you saw a child drowning in, in a pond and saving them required getting your you know, $200 shoes wet, no one would hesitate to do that. No one would think about, well, I'm going to lose $200. Yet, if $200 donated to charity could save a life in Africa, many people would hesitate. They would say, well, that's not morally necessary. That's, uh, I guess, philosophers would call it supererogatory, right? That is nice. It's a nice thing to do if you want to go the extra mile, but it's not morally required in the way it would be morally required to save the child. And this was a very, this was a very compelling argument for lots of people. And... I think it's fair to say that it was the thought experiment that started, in essence, started the effective altruism movement, which um, former guest on this podcast, Will McCaskill, is now in some sense the, the face of, if, if you're not the face of it. You know, between the two of you, you are the older and younger faces of it, I would say. And um, it's, it's blown up on college campuses. I remember at Columbia, I had many friends that were involved in the effective altruism movement. And there is kind of a stronger version of it, which is like donate every penny that you don't need to survive. And then there is a more modest version of it, which is like pledge to donate X percent of your income, where X might be 10 percent, maybe even lower, like 2 percent. So it seems to me this is, you know, I, well, as a philosophy major, I, one can get jaded on the impact of philosophy in actual life, but you're one of the most impactful in terms of you've started actual movements with thought experiments that have actually become trends and, and, and made an impact. And that's kind of every philosopher's dream in a way. So I guess before I ask you specifically about effective altruism, what is a, how do you feel being one of really the only modern philosophers whose work like has created real political movements? 
well, I mean, it makes me feel that I have achieved something, really. I think both of these... Firstly, I, I'm not necessarily saying that it's just my work that has created either of these movements. Um, certainly in the case of effective altruism, uh, Will McCaskill and also Toby Ord, who was one of the founders with Will, you know, they, did, they really did a lot. And in fact, they added the effective, which is really important. And I hadn't really gone into that very much in, in my original article on that topic. In the case of the animal movement, I think my work uh, as a philosopher was was significant, but there were also, of course, a lot of people who had to get active and do things about it, take up the message. You know, people like Ingrid Newkirk, who founded People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals and read Animal Liberation, but, you know, it's a huge amount of work to, to turn that into a movement. So I don't, you know, I, I shouldn't take too much credit for it, but, but the fact that ideas that I wrote about have been taken up by a lot of people and have had a significant practical impact, and, and both of those movements have in different ways had significant practical impacts. Yeah, that makes me feel good. I mean, both personally that I've achieved something, but also, I mean, good for philosophy that it does actually change lives. And a lot of people don't realise this. They don't understand it. They think philosophy is some sort of ivory towered thing where people are walking around with their head in the clouds and it has nothing to do with real life. But philosophy is actually one of the very few uh, disciplines or areas of you know, things that you might study at university where you can really say uh, this could change your life in a significant way. You know, this is It's interesting because, you know, as a philosophy major, I remember you know, I would have a semester where I'm in an ethics class reading Peter Singer, right? And then two hours later, I'm in a metaphysics class talking about whether holes exist or whether a hole is merely the absence of matter. And so one gets both extremes of the deepest and most important ideas that you could encounter and just playing, you know, just like playing with ideas that really don't matter. So in some sense, I think philosophy's reputation is is earned in half of its output, but unfair in the other half. And you have, you have um, contributed really to the important stuff. Yeah, I felt like that actually as a student. Um, I felt that to some extent, some philosophy was a, was a bit like solving chess puzzles. You know, I used to play a bit of chess when I was younger and there were those puzzles, white to mate in yes, I love three those. and two moves. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, but you wouldn't really want to spend your life where solving those was the, the best thing that you did. Well, um, tell that to a chess professional. <laughs> okay, maybe. No, um, I get your yeah. point. So, yeah, there were areas of philosophy that were like that, and there were, but then there was this ethics and uh, political philosophy as well that was relevant. And, and so those were the areas that, I think, kept me doing philosophy. And if it wasn't for those areas and the fact that you could apply them to life, although when I was an undergraduate, that was still a bit frowned upon. Philosophy didn't really do practical ethics. It did normative and meta-ethics. But, but uh, the, fact that, the fact that that was possible, I think, um, kept me going in philosophy rather than doing something different. So with regard to effective altruism and donating your money to charity, I know people like Will McCaskill... I don't know if this is still his position actually, but certainly earlier in life felt that what you should do is earn as much money as possible, go work on Wall Street, go work in VC and donate 90% or more of your income. Live off twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 a year because you don't need more than that really if you're a single young person. Although with inflation, that may, might be different now. And just donate it all, right? To construct bed nets in Africa and to evidence-backed, charities that are really saving the most number of lives per dollar. I think I've seen a pivot a little bit away from that in the effective altruism movement towards a kind of pluralist, moderate approach. Uh, I'm curious, what is your perspective? Do you, do you think that that is what young people deciding their careers should be aiming for? Or do you think there's a multiplicity of approaches? How do you view that? Yeah, I think there is a multiplicity of approaches. And I think that's at least in part because people are different. And there are some people who could do that well. Um, I have a student, or I had a student at Princeton um, many years ago, it must be sort of eight or 10 years probably by now, who was a very good philosophy student and could have, he majored in philosophy, he could have gone on to Oxford to do graduate work there, which is a lot of good philosophy students dream. It's a beautiful place. And there's lots of good philosophers there. Um, but he was troubled about, you know, would would he do more good if he tr tried to earn as much money as he could or, or a reasonable amount of money and donated it? Um, and because he, as well as being good at philosophy, he was good at math. So he had very good offers from Wall Street companies 
And he decided to to take those offers and to do that. Um, and I spoke to him after he'd been doing it for a couple of years and he was enjoying it. He, he wasn't finding the work dull because there were challenges in the work that he was doing that, uh, that he enjoyed. Um, but he was living relatively modestly and earning a goodly amount of money and giving away most of it. Um, so he did feel that what he was doing was was worthwhile. Uh, so for people like that, um, I think that can be a really good thing to do. But firstly, not everybody is like that. Some people, if they're not really interested in the work for its own sake, would not enjoy it or would not even perhaps do well at it because they wouldn't really be engaged in it. And, and then there might be people who would get tempted by the lifestyle of their colleagues who are earning similar amounts of money but are driving fancy cars and living in beautiful apartments. Uh, so there's that temptation you've got to be prepared to resist. But there's something else that I think is why um, people like Will and others in the effective altruism movement don't emphasize it as much anymore. And that's a realization that for some organizations, the constraint on them doing more good is not that they don't have enough money, but that they don't have sufficiently talented people working for them. And so therefore, people with particular talents who could earn a lot of money in the finance sector, for instance, might actually be doing more good going to work for these organizations. What about the, to, oh, well, just to just to give a coda to that point, I think this is one of the big problems with public school teachers, police officers, these kinds of public service jobs often don't command a high salary and therefore find it difficult to attract the best talent. And we, this is one of my this is one of my own hobby horses, but just like the, the concept of defunding the police as a way of improving the police seemed backwards to me because I would agree that there like there are a lot of lot of bad cops. But if you wanted to improve, say, public school teachers, your first thought would not be to defund. Your, your, your first thought would be, let's try to raise the salary so we can attract some of the people that would otherwise want to go into finance and attract them into government and public service jobs, right? In any event, how, what do you? How do you think of the trade-off between someone that's going to donate a lot of money to charity as opposed to investing a lot of money in an uncertain, risky investment that might yield massive benefits for humanity, like biotech or or, or tech in general? Yeah, I think that's really difficult to to say in advance because you have to have some sense of what the odds are of, of how good are the chances of this really paying off in some massive way. So, you know, I, I don't really feel that I'm able to give people advice in that area. Um, but if they are going into an area where there's the potential to do a lot of good uh, and they're, they're talented and may make a contribution, I would certainly not discourage them. I would say, you know, yeah, give it your best shot, see how it works out. So how do you think of the, the trade-off between alleviating global poverty and environmental conservation. Just to describe it briefly, China and India, you know, in some way the biggest story of the past 50 years is China and India taking, you know, hundreds of millions of people from the global poor into the global middle class. And I think everyone believes that that's a good thing. What has allowed for that is the industrialization of those societies, at least in part, and a side effect of that has been that China and India emit so much more greenhouse gas than they did 50 years ago. Those things have gone hand in hand, a great thing and a very bad thing. And they, they're not just hand in hand, they're causally related in some way. So how do you balance that trade-off from a broadly consequentialist perspective? Yeah, um, I certainly agree. It's a really good thing that there are hundreds of millions fewer people living in extreme poverty. And I also feel that you can't really ask people to stay in poverty in order to protect the environment of the world. Especially you can't ask them that if you're living in a country like the United States, where people per capita are producing far more greenhouse gases than uh, people in China or India, and um, particularly far more greenhouse gases than people living in poverty in, in those countries because they produce very little. So I think what we have to hope is that by industrializing and raising people out of poverty and increasing the living standard, these countries will then be in a position where they can take the kind of action that we and uh, European nations are at least trying to take to reduce their greenhouse gases, you know, to 
clean, clean up the energy system and, and go solar and renewable uh, and also then establish systems of national parks and reservations and biodiversity conservation where, where something of nature is preserved. Uh, and, of course, there is a real question as to whether enough of nature is left in these countries for there to be real conservation. But I think it's still possible. I think it's, it's not irredeemably lost, although I must admit we're getting to scarily close to all of those things being lost. So um, a, a few months ago, as you know, there was a scandal in which Sam Bankman-Fried, potentially pending a, a verdict, embezzled millions of dollars uh, from small donors and he was in, in some way becoming one of the faces of the effective altruism movement. And it attracted a lot of negative attention for the movement and a lot of, a lot of people dunking on the movement by saying, see, you guys really aren't so moral after all. You have this massive, you know, maybe billion dollar fraud. Aren't you guys just as bad as the rest of us? Maybe even worse. I've been suspicious of you for a long time and now this proves it, right? So yeah. what would your response be to such criticism? Uh, yeah, one thing, I think you slightly misspoke because you said that Sam Bankman-Fried embezzled money from small donors. I think you meant oh, small yeah. clients, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's not suggesting some people might say, you see, we donate to these charities and Bankman-Fried somehow got the money that was supposed to go to the poor, but that was not it. Um, but yeah, yes, what he did was, well, what he has, is alleged to have done seems very clearly wrong. And and it was certainly a setback for the movement because he had become more or less a pinup uh, person for the movement because here was somebody who seemed to be a real whiz kid, had earned huge amounts of money and was talking about donating it all to good causes and did donate significant sums, uh, estimates I've seen are between one and $200 million, which is not small change. Um, but, but when your estimated fortune is $25 billion, then it's not a large proportion of that, I suppose. But yeah, so it was a setback and um, it's hard to know exactly what went wrong I think he had he'd made some bad investments with his own hedge fund, and then he sort of basically it was like a double or nothing sort of thing, but it ended up nothing. And yeah, it's a blow for the movement, and um, there's the loss of those very large amounts of money that could have done uh, a huge amount of good. Plus, there's the reputational damage. But I think slowly we will rec recover. You know, there are lots of other people. He was just one in uh, effective altruism. There are very large numbers of people who are doing lots of good work. Um, I think eventually they will replace Bankman-Fried as the sort of best-known person doing effective altruism. Overall, is your view of capitalism more positive or more negative and why? Well, whether my view of capitalism is positive or negative depends on what the alternatives to capitalism are. And, you know, I, I do often get asked this question, especially when I talk about global poverty and say we should be giving more of our uh, affluence, we should be spending less on luxuries and frivolous things and expensive brand name items and instead should be giving it to the poor. And then people say, well, this is just a Band-Aid, you know, giving charity is just a Band-Aid. The problem is global capitalism and we need to get rid of that. And my answer is, you know, absolutely global capitalism is a system that can leave a lot of people in extreme poverty. But what is it? Well, two questions, actually. Firstly, how are you going to get rid of it? What's your strategy? What should we be doing to try to get rid of it? And secondly, if whatever that strategy is, you succeed, what are you going to put in its place? And I'm still waiting for good answers to both those questions. Right? So when I get a good answer as to how we might get rid of global capitalism, and even more importantly, when I get a, a clear alternative, which in some way has been trialed or shown in some particular regions or countries to actually work and produce as much in the terms of the, the, th the things that meet our needs as capitalism while avoiding poverty and distributing income more fairly, um, you know, then I'd say, okay, great, let's try and do this and replace capitalism. But, you know, the closest we've come to that are sort of those states which have good social welfare policies and uh, make sure that nobody really is in extreme poverty. Um, Scandinavian nations have been a model for that to some extent. Um, but they're still capitalist societies, you know, they still have capitalist economies driving them. So for want of a better alternative, my view of capitalism is it's not great, but it's what we've got and we have to try and make the best of it and we have to try and 
ameliorate the negative side of it, which we see in things like leaving people in extreme poverty. And of course, we see it in terms of devastation of the environment and uh, fighting back against sensible changes, whether they are things like reducing the suffering of animals in factory farms or reducing uh, our greenhouse gas emissions. We, we need to have a form of capitalism that is constrained by democratic control to uh, avoid all of these harmful effects of it. Do you have uh, a position or a perspective on universal basic income? I like the idea of universal basic income. Um, it does seem to do good. There's a certain amount of research and trials, which I think give on balance positive results. They're not always so. Um, perhaps we, we need to have some more of that. Perhaps we need larger experiments. I know that uh, Give Directly, which is one of the charities that um, is recommended by The Life You Can Save, which is an organization that I founded that spun off a book I wrote with the same title. Um, so Give Directly is doing uh, universal basic income in some poorer parts of East Africa and so far that seems to be doing good. But what they're trying to put together, if they can get the funding for it, is to take a whole country and provide enough income to have universal basic income for that country. And they're looking at one of the poorer, relatively smaller countries in Africa where they might try that because that's where it might be feasible if you can raise the donors to do that. So I'd really like to see that done um, and then we would have a much clearer idea of whether this works for people um, in poorer countries. Now, it's a, it's a separate question how it would work for the United States or um, other more affluent countries. Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical that it would work well in the more affluent countries. And even the an experiment in like a town in America, even if that went well, I don't think it would follow that it would go well if everyone is given that sum because still some of the benefit might be that the people in the town are getting relatively more money than the people in the, the the rest of the country, and if everyone gets it, that relative benefit might might not matter. And and also, it does seem there is something extraordinarily wasteful about giving rich people the same amount of money. It does seem. I know that solves other problems of like means tested programs, but there does seem something massively wasteful about giving a, even a millionaire like a thousand dollars a month or something. Yes, yeah, so I. You know, if it's if it's taxable, then the millionaire has to pay back a significant proportion of it. Whereas the people who who's in, who for whom it's the, their total income, um, you know, depending on where the tax threshold is, they ha either have to pay no tax on it or it's a very small amount. So it's not as uh, wasteful it would be if you didn't have a progressive tax system. So I'm I'm open-minded on it. I would say I can understand why people are skeptical about it, but I'd, I'd still like to see it tried in a more affluent country just to see how it goes. Okay, so you wrote a very interesting paper in 2010 called Secrecy and Consequentialism. Do you recall that? Yeah, it's a co-authored paper with Katarzyna de Lazari Reddick, right? Uh, he's a Polish philosopher. And it, it made a very interesting argument for esotericism, which is, as I understand it, the idea that it could be true in a consequentialist framework that certain actions are only moral if they're done in secret. So, and, and that it not only are they only moral if done in secret, that doing them in secret is the most moral action in a particular situation. So you give the example of, uh, I don't, do you, you remember the, the, uh, the hospital example that you give? Oh, the, the, the organ transplant yeah. example? Yes. Right. Yeah. So can you explain that? Yeah. Um, this is in a way a version of the trolley problem, which a lot of people have heard of, but it, it is uh, slightly different. So there, there are different variants of it, but the simplest variant is you're a very skilled surgeon, um, very knowledgeable about uh, how to do organ transplants. And you have five patients, each of whom need different organs, or let's say two of them need a kidney, one of them needs a heart, one of them needs a, a lung transplant. And you could do all of these transplants if you had the organs and you know that they would be successful and this would be life-saving for each of these five patients. Then a patient comes in with a brain tumor that uh, could kill them, um, but the rest of their body is is fine. Um, and you're asked to perform this, this brain surgery, which is extremely delicate. And because you are skilled, you could actually do it and you could save their life, but you could also just do it slightly less well and they would then be brain dead. And once they're brain dead, then their organs would become available for the patients that you know you could save 
with the, the organs from this one person. So it's like the trolley problem in the sense what you're doing is killing one to save five. And what we argue here is that you could not possibly say in public that this is what we will do if we have people who need organs um, and somebody comes in uh, whose organs are good but who has some other condition uh, that we could succeed in in curing them, but we're going we, we might not cure them because then we can donate the organs to others. Well, obviously, people would with good organs would not go to that hospital. Right? Um, they would avoid it, and and the reputation of doctors might be damaged in various ways because people would not accept that. So it would be would be wrong for the hospital to issue a public policy that this is their policy. But but this doctor could do this secretly and could be pretty confident that they would not be detected because of how delicate the brain surgery that they were being asked to do was. And, you know, Katagina and I basically say that would be the right thing to do if you really were in these very unusual circumstances. And we, and we say that because we certainly think that in the standard trolley problem where there's a runaway uh, trolley that is going to kill five people in a tunnel and the only thing you can do to save the five people in the tunnel is to throw a switch that is near where you're standing and it runs down a sidetrack and kills one person. You know, we're, we're pretty clear and a lot of people agree when you ask them that you should throw the switch in those cases. So we think that that's very close to this uh, brain tra organ transplant case and so we think... Yes, if you could do it secretly, that would be the right thing to do. Uh, you know, the difference is, as I said, that if it was in public, people would not agree with it or it would have other bad consequences. Yeah, so I'm curious if if you remember in 2020 when COVID just began and it was really a, an issue in Italy. Ho hospitals were overwhelmed in Italy and our hospitals were not yet overwhelmed, but we were looking at Italy and seeing that they were having to institute these horrible triages where they had to, in a very utilitarian and rational Spock-like way, simply save the most lives, which might mean if you are very unlikely to survive, we are not going to give you uh, a respirator, sorry. And we are going to let you die in the hallway of the hospital because there simply aren't enough beds. I'm curious if, because a lot of your arguments are difficult to disagree with, but they also feel wrong. Right. Like it really feels wrong for me to agree with the doctor that lets the patient die in order to to let the four or five patients live. But I'm actually not really sure why it's wrong. It just really feels wrong. So during COVID, people were in in a kind of real life situations like this where they had to make decisions that were horrible emotionally, but probably rationally warranted. I'm curious if you noticed this and noticed at all how people reacted to it and if you had any thoughts about it given the kind of arguments you made in your career. Yes, I certainly did notice it, looked into that situation and in fact, again, together with Katarzyna de Lazari Ruddick, we gave a paper at a conference in Sweden, I think about a year and a half ago now, which was a conference um, in honor of a Swedish philosopher called Torbjörn Tansio, who's also a utilitarian um, and we were looking at this issue in a way from some things that he had written about resource allocation. And we argued that the Italians were right to triage in that situation, that they didn't really have an alternative. And um, and in fact, the society, there was an Italian medical society of uh, uh, intensive care physicians and I think anaesthetists as well and some others, uh, and they issued a statement defending that, saying that was the right thing to do in that situation. Later on, there was there's also a, a national Italian bioethics committee which took a different view, but we sided with the, the medical association rather than the national bioethics committee because, uh, you know, again, it was a case where if you went along with the, the, the traditional rule for intensive care unit admission was first come, first served. And normally that's okay because normally you have enough beds and it's rare that you have to send someone away, you don't have room, and what you can do is you can ring up a nearby hospital and say, do you have room? And so there'll be somewhere else that that patient can go. But at that time, throughout, well, certainly Northern Italy, you couldn't send them anywhere because all of the hospitals were experiencing the same thing with the pandemic. So uh, it was gonna be a case of, if you admit on a first come, first served basis, then you might have somebody who is you know, very elderly, who will need an intensive care bed for quite a long time. If they're going to survive at all, there's quite a high chance they won't survive in the end. And if they do survive, well, you know, they're already 
85 and you'll maybe be saving five, giving them five years of life. Whereas you're turning away somebody who firstly has a better chance of survival because they're younger and fitter. Secondly, will probably be out of your intensive care unit faster than this other person. And finally, if you save their life, you're probably giving them 30 or 40 years of extra life rather than just five. So for all those reasons, um, I think that the first come first served rule is not a a moral principle in situations where you can see that you will be running out of neonatal, or sorry, running out of intensive care beds in the hospital. One lesson from that is though people respond to the kinds of moral arguments that you give sometimes very emotionally and very, they they really reject it from with every fiber of their being and you've been called evil, you've been boycotted on college campuses, you've been protested for making similar kinds of arguments that prioritize what some would see as ruthless reason over, quote unquote, having a heart. One lesson from Italy is that when push comes to shove in emergencies, actually often people who do have a heart are willing to think in the way that you would prescribe in order to save the most lives, even when they have to make difficult decisions. Like when it's, it's easy to get mad when, you're, when Peter Singer is coming on your college campus and you've heard a 30-second snippet of his argument, you know, about euthanasia or something. But actually, when a real crisis hits and when people are dying and decision makers are faced with the real choice about saving lives and getting their hands dirty to save life, a lot of times those same people would be willing to make those decisions. Yes, I think you're right. I think the pandemic was interesting. Even in, though we don't like way. to think of them in, in non-crisis in the time. Abstract. And, and, we, and we resent those who ask us to think about them in non-crisis time. Yeah, that's a problem. The, resent- the resentment is, as you say, it's been a personal problem for me. And it's a sort of, it's in a way a kind of strange quirk in our, in our moral thinking. I would say, you know, the reason you said you feel uncomfortable about some of the things I say and other people reject them with every fiber of their being, I think that's because in normal circumstances, we shouldn't do this. You know, we, we're brought up to follow rather simpler moral rules that don't require a lot of very complex consequentialist reasoning. And maybe even it's not just that we're brought up to follow these rules. Maybe we evolved to follow certain rules and to you know, make certain distinctions between, say, actively killing somebody and allowing someone to die. Maybe that served some function in uh, different sorts of circumstances. So I think that could explain why uh, people resist this. But then when you get to really unusual circumstances that are out of the ordinary, then it becomes clear to people that those rather simpler moral rules are no longer working. Or, you know, if you apply them, you'll get results that are clearly worse than if you don't apply them. Speaking of simple rules, I think you have an argument in that paper, Secrecy in Utilitarianism, or or Consequentialism rather, that when you are giving children uh, sort of rules and, and morality to live by, that it is useful to, I don't think you say lie, but kind of lie, yeah. lie to them. So what, what is that? What's the basis for that argument? So the basis for that argument, I think, is that children in particular may not be able to follow all of the qualifications that you would want to put into certain rules. You know? So if you say things like, you know, well, you've taken Mary's uh, toy and, um, you know, this belongs to Mary, you should give it back, right? You don't want to go into discussions about the institution of property and whether, for example, if there's somebody starving, uh, but it's your loaf of bread, your right to withhold it from them because it's yours. You know, that's that's something that isn't likely to come up very much and would be pretty complicated for them to try to understand the circumstances where the fact that somebody owns something is a reason why they should keep it, whereas in other circumstances it doesn't justify them keeping it. So I, I think it's, it's um, educating your children or bringing up your children by explaining things to them at the level that they can comprehend rather than at the level that if we, you and I are discussing this as, you know, as issues of philosophy, um, a child would not take it. I don't think there'll be any five-year-olds really listening to this podcast, uh, not for very long anyway. Okay, so my final question for you, what is, you know, you've been in academic philosophy quite a long time. What do you feel are the, the biggest and or most surprising changes in the field of academic philosophy? If you could go back and tell your 20-year-old self, you're not going to believe how this has changed. What would be most surprising to tell yourself? 
Well, one thing that would have surprised my 20-year-old self um, that is a really positive thing is that practical ethics or applied ethics has become a really important part of philosophy because it just wasn't then. There was ethics and I had uh, a teacher of ethics who I now realise was actually very old-fashioned by the standards of, say, 1966 when I was 20 because he was teaching normative ethics, you know, theories like utilitarianism and Kantianism and uh, intuitionist ethics, a variety of different ethical theories, when a lot of other philosophers were saying, you know, there's no place for reason in ethics. It's all a matter of just our preferences um, or expression of our uh, emotions. There, uh, uh, There's no truth or falsity. Um, it's all subjective in some way. And, and that was a, a very popular view in the 60s. And it wasn't universal, as I say. There were people like the teacher I had there and there were, there were several others. But the idea that philosophers would actually say, we have an important role to play in discussing applied issues, including issues you know, like the issues that were coming up then, um, issues about the Vietnam War, about civil rights, about abortion, that philosophers should should be playing a, a role in those discussions and, and writing about it uh, would have surprised me. And I think it's a very positive development. Okay, Peter Singer, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks very much, Coleman. I've really enjoyed the discussion. It's been very stimulating. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.